G'day everyone, I'm Lockie Mansell here, welcoming you back to the Checkered Flag Chat Podcast, where this week we're going to ask and hopefully answer some of the big questions around motorsport sponsorship. This is always a hot topic in the motorsport fraternity, and one thing I've noticed is that the goalposts are continually shifting. Sponsorship used to be totally about exposure and brand awareness. You'd put a sticker on your race car, people would notice and recognise the brand. These days though, sponsorship is about so much more than that. It involves things like staff and customer incentives, business to business networking opportunities and various other benefits. I think sometimes those of us in the motor racing industry get so focused on what's happening within our world, we lose sight of the bigger picture. So, I wanted to find out why some companies continue to invest in motorsport sponsorship and how they justify the expenditure, because this information will be valuable for any competitors or categories trying to attract commercial support. This episode, I've brought in Maddie Scordia as my guest. Yes, she is a race fan, but she comes with a wealth of experience in the digital marketing arena and has a good feel for what businesses are looking for and where they're spending their money when it comes to marketing activities. So, let's dive into the sponsorship discussion here on Checkered Flag Chat. Just to help me dissect this thoroughly, I've brought in a subject matter expert. Now, depending on... (laughs) What day you catch her on, she's either Madison Smith or Madalena Scordia, or as I like to call her, Motorcycle Mad Maddie. <laughs> I think we'll go with that. So the reason I've got you on, Maddie, is because you've occupied a range of roles within motorsport, so as a grid girl, as a journalist, but you've also done work outside of the motorsport industry, working for digital marketing agencies. So... I thought that you would be a good person to give us some perspectives from outside because those of us who work in the motorsport industry can sometimes get so fixated on what's going on within the industry and we forget to look at the wide world outside of motorsport. So, welcome. Right. Tell us a bit about your background. Well, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, as you said, so grid girl, journalist, uh, sales manager, found a couple of different things, but you can just call me Maddie. Maddie is good. Um, So yeah, outside of motorsport, I've worked in the last three or four years uh, around digital marketing, e-commerce, and particularly in the event space. Uh, So working with some of the world's largest brands, uh, which is actually quite transferable when you start to attend things like GPs or, you know, a motorcycle meet, whatever it might be. Um, And they're all related. So when we talk about I guess sponsorship of those events. Um, when we're thinking about a brand and, and brand aware- awareness and how they want to be seen and, and who they relate to, that's why they go to motorsport. And it's not just motorsport either. You know, it could be any kind of sport. Um, you'll always see in, in NRL, you might see things like uh, Grilled, which is a, a obviously a fast food chain, healthy fast food chain. But it has that family dynamic and they have the teams that they sponsor. And it's the same thing in MotoGP. Uh, and in Australian superbikes and a few other places, you'll start to see local brands really getting to know their audience and the audiences that they're targeting. And I think a key part of sponsorship is that your target audience is not your whole audience. So tell us specifically then about some of the work that you've done with some of the businesses that you've been involved with with your recent roles. 
So I guess most recently for me, my background would have been uh, for a company called Comexposium, uh, which is the world's third largest event business, uh, and they work in several different verticals. Um, and with that, that's taken me to many different parts of the world. Uh, and we're not just talking digital marketing or media events, we're also talking sporting events. Um, there's a lot involved and a, they have been a great business to work for in the past. Uh, yeah, so I've always worked in sales, um, particularly management of sales, sales executive type roles. And a lot of that is finding brands or finding vendors, uh, targeting them to be part of the event. I guess, and that's, you know, that's when you start to think about the money that you spend, where do you see the ROI and why do you do it? So a lot of the events that I was working on here in Australia and New Zealand were obviously media and marketing based events. Um, so we had all the big dogs in the market here. If you're thinking like a CRM, Salesforce, for example, all of those kind of guys uh, are a big part of those integral events. So that was sort of how I ended up falling into things like journalism as well and a promotional ambassador, ambassadorship and all that kind of stuff. Because at the end of the day, if you've got the ability to talk to people and you know what you're talking about, people tend to trust you. And not only that, but if we take a step backwards, you going out and basically selling promotional opportunities and events, very, very similar to selling sponsorship for motorsport events or motorsport teams or competitors. So therefore we can see how you've developed the interest in the motorsport sponsorship side of things, which is why I want to tap into your knowledge base because that's where your expertise comes in because you've had this experience of dealing with companies and understanding what they're looking for in terms of return on investment. So I think one of the mistakes that so many racing drivers or teams looking for sponsorship make is they assume that it's all about exposure and brand awareness. But would you agree that the days of sponsorship being all about exposure and brand awareness ended more than a decade ago and that it's so much more than that that you have to be able to offer to potential sponsors these days? I wouldn't disagree with you, but I would say this. If you're a brand and you stand for everyone, you stand for nothing. So, you know, if you think about Nike, for example, just do it. It's a very on-point slogan. Everybody knows it. That's what they stand for and it's who they are. Um, and you know, brand awareness is a, a key part of any brand's offering an opportunity, particularly when you're looking at sponsorship, no matter what vertical it is. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're a brand, you should know you have a target audience foremost, and second to that, you have a audience. Your target audience is not your only audience. And when you're looking to invest in things like motorsport, naturally everybody wants to be on the winning team, but that comes with a price. You know, I'd love to sponsor Lewis Hamilton. Uh, yeah, if I could afford it, I'd sponsor him. I can't afford that. So how do I make the most of my sponsorship? And what channels and streams do I use to gain exposure at those events? Um, and I think that's the direction that motorsport, obviously the big dogs have got in the bag. Uh, but if we're talking more local, that's sort of the direction that motorsport has to start heading. So if you're a motorsport competitor, and there's lots of young drivers or riders who are aspiring professional athletes who need funding to be able to progress their career. How do you convince a business that it's a good value proposition? Look, at the end of the day, I think it's not just about convincing the business. It's passion, right? People buy passion. 
people, you could sell a pen if you sell it with passion. People will always buy passion. And second to that, if you are a young competitor and you're working hard, you you'll start winning races. We see this all the time, you and I, when we're at races, we'll be surprised because someone's come from the back of the field all the way up the front and they might've worked for the last two or three years to do that, but they've still managed to do it. And all of a sudden they're on it. They're winning all the time. I think what's key to remember is like, you're not going to get a sales force to sponsor you if you were 16 and you were in a local competition. It's not going to happen. But when you do have set targets, set boundaries, you know what you can achieve with your team and your bike or your car or whatever it might be, that's when you start to progress and do better. You have to understand where you are and how to get to where you need to be. And a lot of that is obviously showing that you've got what it takes. And secondly, approaching the right people. You know, you can't approach the wrong company to sponsor you because how is that doesn't work for them and it doesn't work for you. But if you approach perhaps a hardware business or a tools business to sponsor you, it might make a little bit more sense based on the audience that is watching it. So if we think about Australian audiences, for example, they're probably going to be male between 18 and 65. Look, men love tools. Like I don't like Bunnings, but I know a lot of people do. So that would make sense. It's practical. And I do like Bunnings actually. I miss the sausage sizzle. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about approaching the right business, but I think another thing is working out who the right person is the key decision maker within a business that you might be approaching. So how do you approach them? I guess for me, like the way I've always approached it, if it's my work, the right people will will sort of come out of the woodwork, right? So if you're thinking about sponsorship and marketing and who you need to speak to, it's going to make sense for you to speak to the director or the head of marketing at any business. If we're in the smaller ponds, smaller food chain, wherever we might be, there might not be a head of marketing. It might be a two or three man business. In which case you can approach all three of them. Um, But generally speaking, when you approach those people, they're probably going to be warm leads anyway. And what I mean by that is they've already taken an interest in it. And that's the best kind of conversation because you already know that there's something in it that they want. You just have to source it. And what we take away from that is just how valuable networking is and getting to know those people and making sure that you've already created the connection before you're actually approaching them for sponsorship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Networking is everything. I know that you specialise in networking events and you go to a lot of networking events pre-COVID, obviously. We (laughs) haven't had so many networking events lately, but do you have any advice for people about the types of good networking events to go to and the sort of mindset that you need to go into those sorts of events with and best ways to approach and meet people? Look, I'll be serious with you. Like, I would go to the opening of an envelope. I am that person, okay? I go to every single available event I can find. I cannot help myself. But I'm a very outgoing, loud, extroverted social person. Really? No. (laughs) I'd like to pretend I'm not, but that would just be a lie. Um, But that's how it works, right? And if that's why I can find passionate people who share a lot of the same common interests that I do because I will go out of my way to find them. But if you're a younger person and you're in the digital marketing industry or uh, sports marketing industry, 
there are so many ways to find people, all the way from university groups to things like meetups. Um, obviously, in 2020, a lot of that's gone online now. Um, Zoom, I love Zoom. I'm so over Zoom. But <laughs> there are really great ways for you to meet people. I just think the key piece when you start talking about what it is you do and how you do it is to do it with passion and be knowledgeable about it. So once you've worked out a, I suppose, a likely prospect in terms of the business that is a potential sponsor and you've worked out who the key decision maker is, how do you then go about convincing them that they can achieve their marketing or sales or commercial objectives by becoming involved in motorsport sponsorship and that they're going to get the return on investment that they're looking for? I mean, I won't go into too much depth around it because I think with that, obviously, you need to have some statistics and that could be broadcast media, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a few different variables in it. But ultimately, if it's for the right value and you can prove uh, like ROI on that, so for every dollar you spend, every 80 cents that goes into broadcast media, at least 1.2 people see it, then it would make sense for every 80 cents that you invest. 1.2 people are going to see it. And that's sort of the, the convincing piece in itself. If you have an objective and it can't be faulted, people will buy it. Why wouldn't you? It would just make sense. Um, and I think that's something that's really important in motorsport marketing that we're starting to see, starting to see gradually, more locally across a couple of different competitions is that people are now aware of the fact that they actually do have to prove ROI because otherwise, what am I doing this for? Exactly right. So that probably brings us on to another topic as well. We like jumping around all over the place <laughs> on this podcast. So with the return on investment and the measurables, I suppose, so the deliverables and the, the metrics, how important is it to make sure that you get that sort of data? You should always have your kit. Like, would you, would you get in your car without doing your seatbelt? I wouldn't go on, on a sales call without having my kid ready. You must have those things. And you can ask for them. If you're a motorsport team, there's no reason why you can't have access to that. It's just a matter of talking to the right person who's organising the business or the competition. Correct. Within the motorsport category that you're competing in. I think, and this comes down to your role as well, where being involved in sponsorship for motorsport or any type of sport and certainly not a standalone marketing strategy or activity. It's part of a wider suite of activities that businesses will be conducting to promote themselves. So a business might be involved in sponsoring motorsport events, but they might be doing traditional advertising. They might be doing online. They might be doing social media advertising. And again, bringing in your expertise in the e-commerce and the online side of things, which I know that you've been involved in, how can motorsport sponsorship complement that? Let's be serious about something. If you're not doing digital in 2020, you're not doing marketing. It's, it's that simple. And realistically, it's a matter of a 10 second video like, hey guys, I'm at the track and I'll see you soon. It sounds quite simple. But ultimately, if you're a, a team or, or a, a racer, whoever it might be, your interactions with your audience and every touch point that you can find them are so important. And that's all about brand awareness and visibility, et cetera, et cetera. But again, what I said earlier is people trust passion. People trust what they see and people expect to see something. 
If they're seeing nothing, you start to get forgotten. So traditional media types now are probably not the way of the, well, they are not the way of the future. Absolutely not. But if we're talking about things like broadcast media, even the way that that's starting to change in 2020, um, obviously with the launch of things like KO Sports here in Australia, that's changed the need to have paid media in your own home and things like that. Um, so sort of getting around that via things like Instagram, TikTok, Facebook ads, um, Shopify Plus, all of those guys. It's about finding people at their touch points. So what are some of the key metrics that companies look at to measure the effectiveness of their online marketing activities? Look, it's a, this is a hard one because you might meet somebody that says, I want 5,000 likes. But if you meet the right kind of marketer, what they'll say is, I want high valuable engagement, which means you won't only get 500 likes, let's say, but on that click through or that call to action button, 450 people clicked through. Whereas if it's got 5,000 likes, but only 50 people clicked through, was it worth what you did? And that's sort of that high impact, big strategy, uh, not necessarily big spend, but things that have meaning. You know, I want to interact with something that means something to me. And that's your target audience. And then your larger audience is, oh, that looks interesting. I might look into it. And that's when you start to see conversions. So it is about engagement and conversion rates ultimately at the end of the day, because if you're a brand, you want people buying. That's, you know, that's your turnover. So that's probably the, the major metric that you'd look to, to find. So if you're a motorsport competitor then, and again, coming back to what you, you say, if you're a motorsport competitor and you're aiming to compete professionally and you're not on social media, then you might as well not even exist as a I wouldn't, I wouldn't say not, not <laughs> exist, Lockie. God, no. I would, I would say that, look, we all know... You're running else. a suboptimal marketing you're strategy. Run, you're running suboptimal. That's it. Like a little bit more than sub. But <laughs> that's it. Look, ultimately, we all know here in Australia that we do have broadcast media and we, can't, we can view things on SBS and, you know, every now and then you'll get the occasional writer or driver that has an interview. But that's not enough. And I think, you know, writers aren't selling anything but themselves and the fact that they can win, right? But also they need to have an audience. And ultimately that's what the brand's looking for. They're looking for someone that has a strong audience um, of the category of people that they want to work with or they want to appeal with. And that's why it's really key that writers and drivers and teams get their social media up and running. And effectively, it doesn't have to be lots of money behind it. It just has to look and feel good. And not only that, but coming back to the point that you made about the engagement. So it's not necessarily about having massive numbers of followers, but it is about posting content that people will click on and engage with and comment on and like and share. And the other things that you can do on social media to increase engagement rates. Do you have any thoughts on, and this is probably overlapping with my area of expertise in media and PR, but thoughts on creating engaging social media content? Be yourself more than anything. And I think that that's sort of the key piece. And what you'll find with motorcycle races or car races, and this is why I really love the sport, is I am the most competitive person I know. If I'm not winning, like something's wrong, I have to win. That passion is what drives me to do better. And that's probably what I share most on my social media. 
um, for my brand as, as Maddie Scordia, that's my brand. I'm very passionate. I like to win and I like to show people that I win. If you're a motorcycle racer or a car racer, you're probably not the most creative person in the world with paints and, you know, influencer marketing, whatever else. Um, but you can share that passion and people will click with it. And I wouldn't necessarily be their target audience, but again, wider audience. Well, I think one of the things is we've seen that businesses and in some cases individuals, they might engage a social media expert to be posting content to their social media channels. But in a lot of situations, those so-called social media experts don't actually know that much about motor racing or about the subject matter. So fans of the sport can see through that, can't they? Because it's not authentic when you get people posting content who don't really know what they're posting about. I think that might be a matter of opinion, and you're going to fight me on that. But the reason why I say that is that you will get groups of people together who actually are not involved in motorsport at all, in any capacity, uh, but think they're God's gift to the world. And people listen to them. But also, they listen to them because they fit in their class or in their bracket. So again, if you are a social media expert, you don't have to know everything about motorsport, but you do have to know what are the key touch points, what are the facts that I can ask Lachlan for, and what can I put in that post, or what can I share in this video that means something. But ultimately, if you do get motorsport and you work in motorsport as a social media campaigner or whatever it might be, I mean, that's like, yes, that's anyone's dream job, or I guess anyone like me is their dream job. Yeah, I've always considered myself to be a motorsport expert who has had to learn about social media along the journey. See, so. I'm like the exact opposite. I'm like a social butterfly that had to understand motorsport. And now it's like the thing. We all click. We all work together. One of the things, and we discussed this on a previous episode of Check and Flag Chat with Dave Stilwell, is that with COVID-19, there's a lot of doom and gloom with people suggesting that companies will wind back their sponsorship activities because the optics of spending money on motorsport sponsorship, which is discretionary expenditure, mm -hmm. when, for example, you've just had to lay off a whole mm -hmm. bunch of staff because your business is not going so well, the optics of that are not really that great. Um, but in your view, is the outlook really that bleak? No, I don't believe it is. And the reason I say that is, like, it's a buyer's market right now particularly if we're looking sort of local, regionally, APAC, um, or ANZ in particular. Australia, New Zealand. Sorry, ANZ, Australia. And New APAC Zealand. is Australia Pacific Region. Sorry, I'm talking in my, like, sales Marketing jargon. Marketing jargon, <laughs> yep. Um, but, no, it's, if you are in the hot seat right now, and what I mean by that is if you're a smaller business and you have got money, because let's face it, not every business is going to go bankrupt through COVID. Some businesses have gone right through the roof and others have gone, okay, well, we're going to have to sit this out. If you are up there and you've just gone from zero to 10 and you're like, yes, I've been thinking about motorsport, but how do I get involved with it? Prices have come down. Let's be serious about this. People are desperate to get sponsors on board. Also, it costs a little bit less to run a race weekend right now. Um, and that's in terms from, you know, the staff that are allowed on site, uh, the, the visitors that are allowed to come and watch the races. Although they've taken a hit in revenue there, um, the organisers, obviously. Uh, but if you are looking, a brand looking to get into motorsport, there is no better year than 2020 to do it. 
because you can solidify long-term periods of sponsorship now. It, this should be the time to do it. That's actually a really, really good way of looking at it. And 100% with a lot of the work that's being done in motorsport categories at the top level, we've seen it here in Australia with supercars, overseas with Formula One. Obviously, they're looking at ways of cutting back costs as well. The, uh, yeah, the expenditure or the budget that you require to run and run competitively is going to be less than what it was in the past, which means that you're not going to need as much money in sponsorship, which therefore means that you can sell sponsorship packages for cheaper rates than what you might have been able to in the past. So, no, that's good. I like how you've got the optimistic mindset because, yeah, lots of doom and gloom. So, good. we like to think positively here on Check and Flag Chat. So do so, I. Yeah. So do I. One of the other things, though, is that, and this comes back to what I was saying before about with sponsorship, it's not just about putting a sticker on the car. It's not just about brand awareness and exposure. It's about the other benefits that you can sell. And typically, companies that are involved in sponsorship will receive things like access to events, corporate hospitality, passenger rides in race cars, mm-hmm. pin rides on the back of motorcycles, <laughs> maybe. Obviously, this year's bit of an anomaly but even moving forward with the whole COVID-19 and the new normal we might say that access to events is a bit more restricted and some of those corporate options might not be available as freely as what they have been in the past so what sort of benefits do you think that you can continue to offer to companies involved in sponsorship? Look ultimately at the end of the day what companies want is to be seen and heard and bought right that's you know it's turnover um what's really nice about corporate events is that you go and you have a glass of prosecco and you're standing on the straight in monaco and you're watching f1 cars come down and you you're sitting there like yeah i've worked really hard to come to this like as a as an employee or a corporate guest you actually feel that way and you feel very grateful for the company or from from the brand um but I mean, the brands love to spoil their top spenders. Of course they do, but ultimately they're getting revenue from people that are buying the product. Um, So as much as corporate and hospitality events are a key part of business, we can survive the next two years. We'll be fine. And then when corporate events do come back, I guarantee everyone will be having a great time and a party. And that's the, the, the ultimately what will happen. Life will improve again. It will be a new normal. It'll take some adjustment, but we'll all get there. But until then, brands need to think digitally and, and sort of wider than just corporate hospitality. Another area that I'm interested to get your thoughts on, it's an industry that I've started to become involved in a bit more heavily this year, and I know that you've been keeping an eye on it as well, the esports and the sim racing side of things. Still in its infancy, especially here in Australia, but it is growing in popularity. But it is still very much a niche market. That's the Mm -hmm. feeling that I've got at the moment. It's still only quite a small number of participants and people who watch. Uh, The people who are involved are very highly engaged, but it is still quite a small market. What do you reckon that it needs to do to become a legitimate industry and one that can provide people with a sustainable income stream? So I actually spoke to a friend of mine ahead of this conversation because I knew that you were going to ask me. Um, and he works in esports in an agency 
kind of world. And I guess the kind of conclusion that we both came to that is that for it to grow, it really needs that motorsport culture. And what I mean by that is it needs to get those fabrics of people together, um, really backing it, loving it. And second to that, you need to get brands that are racing in these sim racing opportunities to back it like it's a real race, not like it's just a digital race. Um, and I think that's going to be key to growing it. You know, is the hype worth it? I'm sure it is. I'm very sure it is. It's a matter of growing that target audience into a audience, a big audience, not just your target niche audience. Um, but in order for that to happen, brands that are working in this competition, who have just sort of put it to the side of their business and gone, this is our esports thing, but we don't talk to them. They're in their own office. You know, we shut the door on them. No, no, they need to get involved. They need to be a big part of it. Um, and until you start bringing that kind of culture behind it and you start bringing, you know, motorsport culture into it, that's when you'll start to see it grow, which I think in Europe we're seeing, especially with things like GT, Gran Turismo, they do international tours and it's amazing. It's an awesome, fun day. As that starts to happen here in Australia, we'll see it grow. So gradually it will, but it just needs that culture behind it. I think it'll get there, but like you say, I think there's... It's almost there. I feel like we're waiting for one big breakthrough and then it's going to become really successful. We're just, we're not quite I think, there yet. I feel yet. like it's a matter of relating to it, right? Like we know Formula One has a, or maybe, or yeah, Formula One has a following or World Superbike has a following, but that's because I can go and get a World Superbike. So how do I start to engage this second audience in sim racing? So is it about then we have to make the personalities in sim racing more prominent? Because you look at, other traditional forms of motorsport, the categories that you've just mentioned, people engage with them and they have favourite riders or drivers or teams that they support because they can identify with particular personalities. Is that what we need to create in sim racing? I think it's all part of it, absolutely. But again, I think also you've got to remember, it's not just the racing. People watch the racing, but they appreciate the engineering. So how do you get that ingenuity in sim racing? And that's why brands have to back it. Like they seriously have to back it the same way that they back their races on a tarmac. Do you think that there's going to be commercial opportunities? And again, this probably comes back to your expertise. So we've already talked about sponsors and what they get out of being involved in real life motorsport. Tying into the whole e-commerce and online sphere, mm -hmm. how can sim racing be used for sponsors to promote themselves? Oh, in the same way it always has. Look, sim racing is not a new concept, right? Like, it's, it's not new. It's actually been around for, like, a very, very long time. It's just the way that it's sort of operating is changing. You know, 20 years ago on my PS1, I was playing, like, back Bathurst 1000 with my controller, with my dad. I, all the sponsorships were there. You know, you'd see Bridgestone Select or Castrol Oil all mentioned in the game. So that opportunity is still there. It's just a matter of getting the right audience. Um, and that's why, again, back to brands, if a brand is sponsoring something in a real life race and now they're doing it in a sim race, if you are a gamer and you can't drive but you love sim racing, would you buy castrol oil? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> to put in your non-existent car. <laughs> So that's, yeah. that's the change. That is literally the tipping point. That's all that has to be done. And then you'll start to see a change. So let's talk a bit more about you. So 
you've obviously, as mentioned, worked for a couple of different companies that have been involved in events, but you've got a couple of your own businesses as well. Paddock People is one, and also Love My Ride. Tell us about what you've got planned for those. Well, I'm very excited to announce that uh, Love My Ride, which was a business I started with my business partner, Reeve Quayle, uh, has actually just absorbed Paddock People. So we're all part of the, the Love My Ride flag now. Um, but basically, Love My Ride is sort of our little project. It's, it's a passion project and that's, you know, it's my side hustle, one of my many side hustles. I'm always busy. <laughs> um, but basically, what my business partner and I came to the realisation was that we're passionate people, we love riding our bikes, but it's so inaccessible to get accessories in Australia. Um, obviously, I work in e-commerce and digital, as I've mentioned, I don't want to have to go shopping. I actually just, I know my helmet size, I know my glove size, I know my bodysuit size, why can't I buy it online? Um, and that's basically what we've gone and done. So if you would like some motorcycle accessories and gear, you can get it from Love My Ride Australia. And with Paddock Paper, one of the things that you were doing was creating a lot of content around uncovering more about personalities of people involved in the sport. So. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you'll now be doing through the Love My Ride channels? That's correct. So uh, our content piece will still be called Paddock People, so expect to see it in your inbox. It's not going to change. Uh, but the whole concept of Paddock People was to give, in particular, women a platform to share, create, engage in the motorsport industry. Um, and there are a fair few different things like that going on in the world. I'm not the only one doing it. Um, but it was really about creating a movement, particularly uh, around things like influencer marketing and brand ambassadorship. Um, obviously, we're starting to see uh, the roles of women in paddocks change globally and in lots of different competitions. I don't necessarily agree with that, but what I do think is digitally, how can we still contribute in the same way without having to be in the paddock necessarily? And that's what Paddock People is about. So give us a bit of a, an insight into the sorts of content pieces that you're creating? Sure. So I guess at the moment, a lot of it's coming back um, out of Europe in terms of racing. So I'm always on the phone to a few different people in MotoGP and World Superbike. Um, this year has been a lot of conversations around sort of what jobs are appropriate in the paddock and, and what people need to stay home. And, and obviously it's a much slimmed down uh, race and paddock this, this season. Um, but the content that you'll be getting mostly, which I'm very, very excited to launch, <laughs> is literally things like what would, what would your other career be if you weren't a motorcycle rider? You know, what would you be doing if you weren't a motorcycle journalist? All of that sort of stuff. And they're the, the ridiculous questions that I ask, but it's also the questions I know my target audience love to know about. Well, speaking of ridiculous questions... Oh, God. Here on Checkered Flag Chat, we always finish up our <laughs> podcast with a segment called Checkered Flag Choices. Okay. And it's like speed dating, and the way it works is that I ask you five questions, and you answer them. Okay. Don't worry, it's not too I'm hard. I'm so worried. This wasn't in the brief. <laughs> it's a bit of fun. No, it wasn't in the brief, because the idea of it is that we don't want you to have okay. to prepare in advance. Okay. So, question number one pre-COVID, what is your favourite holiday destination? Oh, that's a really tough one. <laughs> I like, because Liverpool, Liverpool in the north of England. But you're about to move there, so I won't <laughs> be a holiday destination anymore. <laughs> I feel like the fact that I said Liverpool for a holiday is a funny one. Oh, okay. Uh, Napoli, Naples. 
Who are, question number two, who are three people you would invite to dinner? Dead or alive? Yeah, dead, actually, yes, dead or alive. Okay, yep. okay. My, my real dad, John Lennon. I don't know, actually, who else I would invite because he's just, like, it for me, really. Oh, George Harrison. I'd invite George Harrison. And then I would also probably invite Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton? Yeah, he's, he's single and below 35. <laughs> just... Fair point. <laughs> Your face. Sorry, continue. Question, question number three. What is your dream car? Actually, mm. I already know what your dream car is because you've told me. Rolls-Royce Phantom. Yes, it is. That's my dream car. So, what's your dream motorcycle? Do you know what? Like, I already had my dream motorcycle. So, I don't know now. What was it? It was a Ducati Monster. It was my baby. Learner approved. Very sweet. It was a bit heavy, but I got around. I think that was it, really. I wouldn't have any other kind of dream motorcycle. I'm too small. <laughs> yeah, join the club. <laughs> Question number four, what's the best advice you've been given about motorsport? Chin up. Chin up. And, and what a, I think the story, the short story behind that was everybody struggles and it was, I was having a really hard time just being a female and I just had to realise, like, chin up, it's fine. It's a job like any other one. Just get on with it and do it and do it well. And that's sort of my motto of life, really. Get on with it and it works. And question number four. Five, last question. Who's the motorcycle racer who you respect the most? Oh, it's a tough one because I feel like you want me to say, say Valentino Rossi. That was what I expected. Which I do want to say, but also there's been some good ones. But yeah, like, listen, Valentino Rossi is the GOAT, all right? He's the greatest of all time. And people are like, he's old, the doctor needs to retire. No, he doesn't. Look at his age. He's still racing. He's gone through three different manufacturers world champion with two of them more than once he is the goat so yes rossi i love rossi Ooh, rossi and that wraps us up for <laughs> this episode of check and flag chat been a bit of a different episode this one but certainly interesting to get your insights into the whole motorsport sponsorship game from a bit of a non-motorsport perspective i think and uh, hopefully there's some valuable information there for people who are seeking sponsorship in motorsports so maddie smith madalena scornia motorcycle mad maddie thank you for your time thanks for having me lucky a couple of big takeaway points from this podcast the first one which is very happy news to everyone is that just because we're going through a bit of a tough economic time with covid19 at the moment it doesn't mean it's going to be impossible to find sponsors in fact because a lot of motorsport categories are making some heavy-duty cost reductions, it means the required budgets are going to be lower and the value proposition will potentially be an easier sell to prospective sponsors. The second takeaway is that before you approach a business for sponsorship, it's important to understand their existing marketing activities and then using motorsport as a platform to complement and add value to those activities. So many people make the mistake of putting together a sponsorship proposal without actually understanding or doing their research on the objectives and requirements of who they're pitching to. So, for those of you who are motorsport competitors or category-seeking sponsorship, use this racing break as time to identify some businesses to target, 
build relationships with the relevant contacts and then come up with something that creates value for them. I'm Lockie Mansell. Thanks for listening.